Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. If you're looking in the people, you ought to find it on page 961. Maybe one of the most famous stories in the Bible is the story of uh, Moses encountering God in the burning bush in the book of Exodus. The Lord says to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And much to Moses' chagrin, um, God went on to tell him, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And of course, Moses starts hemming and hawing about how he's not adequate. And God's response to him is not this sort of pep talk of, oh no, Moses, you are adequate. All that you need is within you. If you'll just look inside and see the greatness within and let it shine, that's not what he says. God's response is, I will be with you. And, and you're not adequate, Moses, but I will be with you. That's his response. And God tells him that he's going to give him the works to do and the words to say. And specifically, I want you to hear what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh. He tells him to say these exact words when he goes before Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord. Now, let me just pause there and, and, and you just ask yourself the question, do you think that Moses felt any liberty to fudge on what God said or to kind of tinker with it? Thus says the Lord. I don't think so. I think God meant for him to say these exact words. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Now, when we think about the story of, of Exodus, what we often hear in our mind is Moses saying, let my people go. But the words that God gave to Moses to say to Pharaoh were, let my son go, that he may serve me. Now, what does that have to do with the book of Hosea? Well, God says a lot of harsh things to the people of Israel in the book of Hosea. But I want us to be reminded that this is how God sees them, that they are His children. And that relationship entails two things at the same time. It entails the privilege of being loved by God, and it entails the responsibility of loving Him in return. And Israel has certainly failed in that responsibility. They have not lived up to what it means to be God's children. And what I want us to see this morning is that sin is not just rebellious and wicked, although it is certainly those things. It is also inherently foolish. It leads to destruction, and yet we're all guilty of it. So let's read together here in Hosea chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse one. God speaking, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him 
and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The, sh- the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. We're going to pause there and let's pray together. Lord, I pray this morning as we hear you describe your love for the people of Israel and as we hear you describe their foolishness in spurning your love that we would see ourselves in them, that we would see simultaneously that we are deeply loved and deeply foolish and so we need your grace to help us to continue returning to you. So help us, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been making our way through the book of Hosea, and if you're a very you know, particular kind of person, you might be thinking right now, Matt, I think you skipped over a few things, because when we left off last Sunday, we were in Hosea chapter 6, and now we're in Hosea 11. Did I miss something? Has there been some time warp that I... No, you, you haven't missed anything. We're jumping ahead a little bit, and the reason for that is because of something that, that all the prophets do. They all practice this intentional, purposeful repetition. And uh, as, you, as you read through chapters 6 through 11, what you find is Hosea using this flurry of metaphors, all these different images, all this figurative language, and I don't, I don't want to give you the impression that all of those things, he's making exactly the same point. But I do think it's possible to, to try to summarize much of what he says in a few concise ways. And the central image that I want us to keep in mind is the one we just read here in chapter 11, because God calls Israel all kinds of things uh, throughout these few chapters. He describes them like a half-baked loaf of bread, a senseless bird, he even calls them a wild donkey. And you can, you know, kind of maybe come up with a more colorful way of saying that. All of those images communicate something true about Israel. But this is the place where we hear God's heart the clearest. Israel is not just a people rebelling against their king. They are like a son turning away from the loving wisdom of a good father. And God is not a spiteful tyrant lashing out at his disloyal subjects. He is a good father who lovingly, wisely disciplines his wayward children for their good. And we are a part of this story as well. I want you to hold your place here in Hosea 11. Flip back a couple of pages to Hosea chapter 6. And look at what God says about them 
in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. He says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. What Israel had done in breaking the covenant is what every human has done from Adam on. What, what God is saying is, in breaking the covenant, you're just like the original ancestor, Adam. This is what everyone has done. right? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. That does not justify our sin. It simply means that we're not alone in needing a Savior. We too have acted foolishly. And this image of a father and son helps us to see why sin is so utterly foolish. There are many ways we could talk about sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It is internal corruption that pollutes our nature and all of our thoughts and actions. Sin causes us to be guilty before the Lord. It brings shame on us. Those are all legitimate ways of talking about sin because those are all ways that God talks about sin in His Word. But in addition to that, sin is also foolishness. It is self-destructive. It doesn't make any sense, yet we all do it. Not just Israel, but everyone from Adam until now, except one person, but we'll come back to him in a little bit. Today and next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to look at two forms of sinful foolishness, two expressions of this kind of foolishness. And today we're going to focus on the foolishness of trusting human wisdom and strength. The foolishness of trusting in human wisdom and strength. So here in chapter 11, God describes raising up Israel from their birth. He says in verse 3, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. There is something especially tender, tender about this. Not just, not just going out and working and providing, not just bringing home food, but taking a little child and holding their hand while they learn how to walk. This is what God says He has done for the people of Israel, for the nation of Israel. He reaches down, and when they stretch out their arms and say, Daddy, He picks them up. He cleans their scraped knees when they fall. He says, they did not know that I healed them. You know, learning how to walk, it's, it's a dangerous endeavor when you're that little Hands and knees get scraped, heads get bumped, and God says, I was there, and I held your hand, and I picked you up when you reached your arms up for me, and I took the peroxide and cleaned off your knee when you scraped it. And you can hear the tenderness in, in verse 4. He says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bonds of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So whether it's you know, a little child or whether it's a little animal, God is saying, I have stooped down on your level to help you, to strengthen you, to feed you. 
And yet Israel refuses to acknowledge this. They refuse to acknowledge that the blessings they have were not earned by them, but were given to them. Just like Adam and Eve, they want to be independent of God. They don't want to admit that what they have and who they are is owing to Him and to His unmerited kindness. And that is the height of foolishness. So turn back a couple pages to chapter 7, verse 9. We're going to look at a few different places in these chapters. Chapter 7, verse 9 God says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Every time I go and get my hair cut, or every time Rebecca trims my beard a little bit, there are more gray hairs that show up, and I see them. And, uh, you know, my knees get tired, and my back hurts, and all those kind of things. And I could pretend like none of that was true. But that wouldn't be smart. God is saying that Israel is acting like someone who's getting older and weaker, but they refuse to admit it. They keep trusting in their own vitality, not acknowledging that God is the one who gave them all of these blessings. Now, before we go any further, I just want to pause there, and I want to make something very, very clear, because sometimes I think people have the wrong idea of God in their head The reason that this refusal to acknowledge God is so problematic is not because God is some emotionally needy person who constantly needs to be thanked for all of the kind things He has done. God is not this passive-aggressive, emotionally manipulative person who says, I can't believe you would treat me this way after all I've done for you. That's not what God's doing here. He's not saying, listen, the reason why I did all these things was because I needed you to love me. God doesn't need us to love Him. Their refusal to acknowledge God is problematic, not because it is devastating to Him, but because it is devastating to them. God knows the consequences for Israel if they trust in themselves rather than trusting in Him. If they think they don't need Him, it's not like He just gets His feelings hurt. He knows that that is devastating and destructive for them. You can see the result of that in verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10, the very next verse. He says, The pride of Israel testifies to His face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all of this. This is where you end up if you think that you're self-sufficient, if you think that you are independent and that you don't really need God. Rather than returning to the Lord, you find yourself on a stubborn, foolish path toward destruction. The way that God puts it in Hebrews, excuse me, in Hosea 11 verse 6 is He says, The sword shall rage against their cities consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. They're trusting in their own wisdom. They're trusting in their ability to fix things. And that keeps them from returning to the Lord, and that leads to devastation and destruction. One real-life example of this is the way that Israel relied on political alliances. You can see that in the next verse in 
Hosea chapter 7, verse 11. He says, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Now, the phrase without sense, it's a polite way of saying a word that we tell our boys not to say, and that word is stupid. God, that's what He calls them here. They are silly and stupid. They're like a dove who's just kind of flitting around, going here, going there, but never landing in a safe place. So this is a time in Israel's history when they were trying to make alliances with some of these bigger nations surrounding them. So they go to Egypt, and then they back out of that and they go to Assyria. And the problem is they, they, they might have gotten some temporary advantages from those alliances. Maybe for a little while, Egypt keeps them safe or Assyria keeps them safe. The problem is those don't come cheap. And so eventually, Assyria comes along and says, hey, we've been protecting you from Egypt. Now you owe us. You have to pay us this tribute. You have to send us soldiers for our wars and all these kind of things. And so Assyria and Egypt are expecting Israel to pay up and so the people don't yet see the invariable truth that you reap what you sow. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. This is one of the most famous verses in the book of Hosea. God says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. That's one of those phrases that kind of made it into our own culture. You might hear people say that sometimes. They've sown the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. It's been well said that you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. And that seems to be the point of God saying, they sow the whirlwind, excuse me, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. They think they can control it. They think we can just go this far and we won't have to go any further. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You reap more than you sow. Rather than relying on the Lord, Israel has trusted in their ability to ally themselves to these other nations. And the result is that all of the blessings that God has been giving them are being used up to satisfy the ones to whom they have indebted themselves. Verse 8, God says, Israel swallowed up Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. What does he mean by that? He means they've been used. All these other nations, you think that you're in this equal partnership, but you're not. They are using you. And as soon as they use you up, they discard you. That's what he means when he says they are among the nations as a useless vessel. You've been used up, and now you're being discarded. Verse 9 for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. So the metaphors change quickly. Senseless bird, the wind and the whirlwind, and useless vessel and wild donkey. But the point is the same. Israel is foolishly relying on their own strength and their own wisdom rather than the Lord's. Now, we could get all high and mighty about Israel, couldn't we? And we could stop there and say, man, they, they surely messed up. 
But uh, I don't think we'd be doing justice to God's Word if we just stopped there. So I want us to turn the spotlight on ourselves. What are some ways that we trust in human strength and wisdom rather than in the Lord? There's a guy named Justin Martyr who was a follower of Christ in the 100s A.D., 1900 years ago. And all the way back then, he identified four primary barriers to discipleship. Here's what he came up with. Sexual immorality, wealth, magic, and ethnic hatred. Now, the one that might seem strange to us is magic. But substitute, take out magic and put in technology. And not a whole lot's changed in 1900 years primary barriers to discipleship, sexual morality, wealth, technology, and ethnic hatred. That list, I was thinking about that this week, and it inspired me to try to come up with what are some of the primary ways that we tend to trust in human strength and wisdom. In other words, we might call this, what are some barriers to dependence? To, to a healthy dependence on God. And some of these are probably true of every human generation, and some are especially tempting to our present generation. So I want to give you five of these. The first two are also in Justin Martyr's list, wealth and technology. And I want to just encourage you to use this list as a way of diagnosing your own heart and examining where you are really putting your trust. So when you think about wealth, ask yourself, am I more concerned with my standard of living or with my standard of giving? I'm certainly not advocating for irresponsibility when it comes to money, but ask yourself, have I allowed my confidence in my earning ability to lead me to to functionally see myself as independent from God? Does my confidence in my wisdom in the pursuit of financial security outweigh my trust in the Lord who provides? And then when it comes to technology, it's possible for us to to overvalue technology as a means of, of averting death, right? Of maintaining health and beauty and youth And so we could put a whole lot of trust in that. Again, we don't need to be irresponsible, right? So when when people say masks might protect you and other people, maybe that's a smart thing to do. When scientists study and they say, hey, we found this way to treat this disease, maybe we should listen to them. That's common grace. So I'm not saying hate technology. I'm saying don't put so much trust in it that we cease to trust the Lord. It could be that we place too much value in technology simply as a a way of distracting us from the world around us. So you think about smartphones, smartphone addiction, excessive time watching TV, playing video games, whatever, that sort of thing. Like money, technology can be a good gift and a helpful tool, but we need to make sure that it's working for us, not the other way around. So wealth and technology, those, are, those can be two barriers to our dependence, our healthy dependence on the Lord. 
the next one I'm going to call progress. And I put that in, in quotes because, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with progress. What I mean is the idea that our generation, that, that our present generation, when we live and where we live, is inherently more enlightened than previous generations. So you'll sometimes hear people say, oh, the Bible's so outdated, as if we are, we are somehow smarter than they were. And we just know so much more than they did. And we're not as gullible as they were, right? And that's, that is foolish arrogance. On the contrary, within the church, you sometimes hear people say something like, well, we don't need anything but the Bible. That's kind of the opposite of the, the first one. But they're both, they both come from the same place. The idea being that I'm enlightened enough on my own without needing to listen to Christians from previous generations. This is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. It's, it's a form of trusting in my own wisdom or in the wisdom of people in my generation rather than listening to a broader swath of Christian witness, the communion of saints throughout time. So we need other believers to help us see things in God's Word that we cannot see. And so we don't need to put so much trust in our own sense of enlightenment that we become unteachable. The fourth uh, barrier to dependence is political idolatry. Israel was guilty of trusting in their alliances with power, and we are no different. Israel thought if we can just align ourselves with Egypt and Assyria, then we can make our lives easier and we can escape any kind of judgment. And God taught them very quickly that that won't work. And, uh, you know, today we see the same thing play out. I mean, to hear some people talk, um, you would think Joe Biden becoming president means the world's about to end. Maybe the world is about to end, but that wasn't decided in November. That was decided in eternity past. God's not worried. He's not fretting. Um, elections are consequential. And especially with the form of government that we have, it's good for Christians to advocate for policies that we believe are just and right. But there is a difference between participating as responsible citizens and thinking that our hope is in the success or failure of an earthly nation or party. Our citizenship, Paul tells us, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Politics are not the problem. Anchoring our hope to political outcomes, that's the problem. Now, I'm sure we could come up with more ways that we tend to trust in human strength and wisdom, but I want to give you just one more, and that is works righteousness. Works righteousness. And by this I mean the idea that being right with God is simply a matter of performing some external ritual and perhaps of doing so with enough sincerity and consistency. So for Roman Catholics, it's taking Mass, making confession, praying to Mary and the saints. For Muslims, it is practicing the five pillars of Islam. For many other religions in the world, it is doing enough good works, making sure that your good outweighs your bad. And the same is true for a lot of people in the so-called Bible Belt. It is... They put their trust in praying a prayer, in walking an aisle, and getting baptized, having their name on a church roll, or just trying to be a good person. None of those five things 
are a suitable foundation on which to rest your hope and your life. And yet we are all tempted to try in some way or another. Not just people out there in the world, but people right here in the church. So we all need to do the inner work of asking ourselves, what are the ways that I am tempted to rely on human strength and wisdom rather than relying on the Lord? When we start to ask ourselves that question, hopefully we can start to be freed from some of these things. And we can start to realize that anything God allows into my life that helps me see my own weakness or the weakness of these alternative sources of strength and wisdom, that is His grace. If God allows something in my life that helps me see the faultiness of putting my trust in one of these things, that is His grace. That's what He did for Israel. Those political alliances shriveled up and came back to bite them in a big way. Their wealth went away as the nations carried it off. All of their, all of their trust and their strength and their military power, it, it failed. Their, their ability to save themselves came up short, and that was God's grace to them. That was God helping them come out of that delusion of thinking that we're enough on our own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that to the world, the message we proclaim of a crucified Savior, the message, that message appears to be foolishness and weakness. I mean, who wants to follow a man who was stripped naked and humiliated, who endured the shame of crucifixion like a criminal? Paul puts it this way, he says, The word of the cross is folly, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The antidote to trusting in our own strength and wisdom is learning to boast in our weakness. That's what Paul did. He didn't try to hide it to make himself look better. He pointed it out. In the book of 2 Corinthians, there were some people who, who tried to say, Paul is weak. He's not strong like we are. He's not as eloquent as we are. He doesn't have as much money as we have. He doesn't look as good as we are. He keeps getting thrown in prison. He keeps having shipwrecks. And Paul says, you're right. And I'm not going to boast in any strength. I'm going to boast in all of those weaknesses. And here, you've left a few out. Let me list them all for you. I've been thrown in prison. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten within my inches of my life many times by some Gentiles and some Jews. Everybody's beaten me. Everybody's hated me. And I'll boast in my weakness because Paul had learned something that God taught him. He had learned the way of wisdom rather than the way of foolishness. God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect 
and weakness. We sometimes think that what God needs is for us to take the strengths we have and to turn them and use them for His glory. And that's what He wants us to do. But in addition to that, He wants us to take our weaknesses. And He wants us to allow those weaknesses to be used for His glory as well. Not just our strengths, but our weaknesses. And so Paul's response to God was, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. And the song we're going to sing is, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It is foolish to try to rest my life on anything else but Jesus. And the hope is that when He shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would be not like the man who built his house on sand and when the wind and the rain came, it blew it out right from underneath it. But that we would be like people who rest the foundation of our life on the solid rock of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to look within and to see the ways that we all are tempted to put our trust and our hope in things that you call sinking sand. Things like our wealth, things like our advancements, our enlightenment, um, things like our uh, temporary political outcomes, things like our own efforts. God, help us to examine our own heart, not to look at anyone else, but only into our own hearts. And that we would see that and that we would be freed from it. And that we would begin to boast in our weakness rather than thinking that you need our strength. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who learn to boast in our weakness. That we would boast only in the cross. So help us now as we sing that these words that we sing would truly be ours that we would mean them from the bottom of our hearts, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Number 511.